Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Dave Jenkinson continues our series of messages on the book of Acts, today looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 47. And now, here's Dave. Well, we certainly had a very interesting evening last night for those of you who uh, were able to be there. Uh, you were blessed. And for those who didn't, well, we're going to pray the Lord willing that you'll be there next year because uh, it was truly a, uh, an event to behold. Not only the, what, the fellowship and the food was wonderful, but also, of course, the, the uh, thoughts of uh, those who were serving in a war-torn land. Faith under fire. So let's uh, just further look to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning as we gather together in this place, place of refuge, a place of safety, place of tranquility, but Lord, also a place where we are energized under your Holy Spirit to learn from you. We are brought to be reminded of that great love, and as we were singing in our prayer, Lord, help us break our hearts for what breaks yours. Lord, we, we come to you recognizing that all of us, both those who are listening and those who are here today, uh, have deficiencies. We don't want to use the word misfits, but we, we are all a little bit weird and uh, tainted by the effects of sin, tainted by the parenting that although our parents always had good intentions, there were so many mistakes, and then we tend to, as parents, make those same mistakes. So, Lord, we pray that as we come to you this morning and come to your word, you may, with fresh uh, anointing from your Holy Spirit, teach us that we might learn, grow, and become more like your Son. To the end, that you might receive the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you'll remember that um, we were, we're looking at Acts chapter 2, and uh, we're going to briefly look at, at verses 22 to 47. We so appreciated what Brother Dave shared with us last week, and uh, so we would hope to kind of continue that theme. You'll remember that he, uh, he the, by way of introduction, uh, Peter is speaking to a crowd that has just witnessed an amazing miracle. Let's not forget the context of this, this sermon. These individuals, the 120 or so, had just been baptized in the Holy Spirit in a very amazing way. And so they had been, they had been uh, given the gift of languages. And Luke, being the graphic historian that he is, he, he lists those 15 or so different languages. Uh, these were known languages of the time. They were not an unknown heavenly language, by the way. They were an earthly language. And that is consistent with all through the teaching of the New Testament when you get to the spiritual gift of tongues. The passage we have in front of us is Peter. Peter's taking his stand with the eleven. Now, it's interesting that we have already witnessed in John's account, in John chapter 20, that Jesus has spoken to the, uh, the eleven 
um, that were present at his day after the resurrection. And he breathed on them and said, receive the spirit. They had received the spirit at that time. So let's be clear. Acts chapter two is not about the reception on earth of the Holy Spirit. Even in the Old Testament, the prophet David would say, where can I flee from your spirit? Where can I hide from him? You know, and he goes on to describe all the different places on earth that you can go. And you are there. Isn't that wonderful, by the way, that we can trust in the one who is with us, not just in the solitude of this hour, but in the other 167 hours of your coming week. Because he has said, you shall call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. And his name is Emmanuel, God with us. And that is the great, that is, you know, that is so foundational to our, our thinking. It's so important because we are not going to a temple in Jerusalem, as was already reminded this morning. We are the temple of the living God. And the joyous opportunity we have as born-again believers is to approach God in his presence, in the holiness of his presence, like Moses, where the Lord says, Moses Take off the sandals of your feet, off your feet. This is holy ground. And so let us not be flippant about when we meet with the Lord. He is our friend, the friend of sinners, but he is still the almighty, the God of all. And so Peter begins by centering on three main thoughts to prove to those who were listening after they'd witnessed the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And how he had already said, this is that which was fulfilled by Joel in the last days it will come to pass. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. There was the thought that only the anointed one, only the king has the spirit of God. Or only the prophet has the spirit of God. That one that stands in the temple. But the rest of us just have kind of second class relationship. And he's saying this is the day when the God who spoke through Joel, it's now come to pass. And the Spirit of God is now available to all. And so he makes it clear that the sun had turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Did you ever wonder why he used that reference? In Matthew 27, verse 45, it said, At the cross, now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. I'm confident that when Peter quoted Joel, he was thinking of those three hours of darkness. Anyone who's gone through a solar eclipse knows it doesn't go for three hours. Not total darkness. The total darkness period is only for a few moments. And then it shoots on. But this was black for three hours. Some have said that it was designed so that God himself would hide his face from his son while he bore our sins on that cross. So the old and young were here prophesying just as Joel had predicted. They, they, they were, Peter was convinced that this was indeed Joel's fulfillment. And so should we. And then he begins in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus. Now we could just stop there, but he goes on and he makes it very clear that he's going to talk about Jesus. Not too long ago, I was watching a, a particular program, and all of a sudden, 
interrupted by a very, very interesting um, announcement. And it was about identity theft. And in this announcement, designed to sell a computer program that would ensure your safety, the announcer stated that every three seconds in this world, there's identity theft going on. So that's 10.5 million a year. And over 100 years, it would be a billion people. That's a lot of identity theft. Makes you want to go down and get the program, doesn't it? But Peter is designing what he's saying about identity. The Messiah. Who is he? There was a great cloud of concern. Was this one that was crucified the real Messiah? How could this be? Surely he was to live forever. And so... Identity was very important. He reminds them that this man was approved, but first of all, he was a man, fully human. You know, sometimes we as human beings say, God, you just don't understand me right now. And I'm here to remind you that God knows you better than you know you. He knows you through and through. He knows the silly mistakes we make. And those choices that we know we shouldn't choose. He knows all about us through and through. He was a man. He was a man approved. That means without sin. He did no sin. He knew no sin. In him was no sin. And yet he was tempted in all points like as we, yet without sin. He was a man approved by God and approved by miracles, wonders, and signs. And if there ever was a person that could do something about weather, about storms, about sickness, about death. It was and is Jesus. And we have similar problems today. Let us never forget to take our problems to the one who is the problem solver. We're so quick to struggle with something, work with something. We, we, we forget things so quickly, you know, um, I remember one time a couple of years ago working and struggling with a brother here on a tractor trying to get the wheel that had fallen off its rim and wasn't setting properly. And we we're trying and struggling. And finally, after about 45 minutes to an hour, we said, maybe we should pray. And we prayed. And within a few minutes, the thing was popped right on. And just as if we said it was almost like the pop said, see, I told you, you should have prayed in the first place. So this year we prayed early and we and it went on much faster. Um, the challenge, again, is to remember uh, that he is with us and he can do all that we need and more. He was approved and done in your midst, witnessed by you, delivered by God to you and delivered by you to be crucified and slain. That's that's a challenge. They had killed their Messiah. That must have really bothered them when that they understood that. But he goes on to say, this one is alive. He is alive. We're here to tell you this. News travels fast in the East. Most had known about Jesus' arrest and trial and crucifixion, but they had heard rumors that the disciples had stolen the body of Jesus. But Peter was here to say, Jesus is alive. Did you know, most people today that you bump shoulders with, and that look at you as a bit of an oddball for believing in a person who died, uh, believe that Jesus is still dead. 
And we're here to say the, the tomb is still empty. We're here to say he was seen of. And 1 Corinthians 15, that great chapter on resurrection, says that he was seen of over 500 witnesses. This one has been documented and is proven that he is who he said he was, the Messiah. And so the prophecy that we've already spoken of earlier this morning, coming from Psalm 16, Peter goes ahead and reminds them of. He says to them, you took by lawless hands and you crucified and put to death the God whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible he should be held by it. And David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord. And then he goes on to say, and you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor allow your Holy One to see corruption. So his proof is that David, who was writing this psalm, obviously thinking of himself at the time because he was the anointed one. That was what he received at his, at his kingship. Yet he was thinking also of the one who would never have bodily decay, that his body would never decay. And here in Psalm 16, he prophetically moves into looking forward to that one who will be the king of all. He foresaw that Jesus would not be left in a, a disembodied state. Neither would his body be permitted to disintegrate, but he would rise again. He again mentions in Psalms 110, at the latter part of this chapter, in verses uh, 34, David did not ascend into the heavens, but says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And that's a quote from Psalms 110, verse 1. And you see, he takes these verses from the Old Testament Psalms and he reminds them that David prophetically saw what was going to happen at the resurrection. It wasn't just the witness of the, the women, the witness of the disciples, the witness of the 500. It was also the witness of the word. You don't have to think that this new movement that you're so antagonistic and so much an enemy of is a heretic a heresy. It is, in fact, God's appointed plan. And so, the third proof was the witness of the believers. After his resurrection, he did not, Jesus did not appear to crowds, but his own followers. But there were people, were dependable witnesses. Prior to Christ's resurrection, number one, disciples didn't even believe he would, he would rise from the grave. They had to be convinced and so Mark 16, 9 to 14 tells us that they saw and were convinced. They had nothing to, they had nothing to gain by preaching a lie. The message had aroused official opposition and even led to imprisonment, sometimes death. A few fanatics might be willing to believe and promote a lie for a time. But when thousands believe the message and when the message is backed up by miracles, you cannot easily dismiss it. Now you might say, well, Dave... There are plenty of other so-called religions in the world today that have hundreds of thousands and even millions of followers. How can the number of followers of Christianity, based against the number of followers of other movements, be an argument? But here's the difference. Your heart. Your heart knows truth. Do you ever notice that about our hearts? We listen to someone talk. And all of a sudden, there's something in our hearts that says, this is not true. Our hearts know truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And so it is that that's another proof of the witnesses. 
And his fourth proof was that the, wit the witness of Christ and the resurrection of Christ was the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus had predicted that he would send the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit would come upon all people after he died and that he would only do this after he ascended back to the Father. And so this is but 10 days after his ascension. He had been 40 days in amongst the people, had ascended as Acts chapter 1 describes, and now 10 days later at the day of Pentecost, this miracle has happened. What a long prayer meeting, 10-day prayer meeting. That's what they had. But they weren't praying for a Pentecost because you know that because it was quite an, quite an experience that they didn't expect. But they were praying that God would show himself what they needed to do yet next. And so the people's response to this sermon was this in verse 37. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Now, if you read this passage in this sermon, I don't know about you, but it's not a, a high emotional sermon. I mean, it does, it does remind them that the word is true and that these men had been a part, party to the, to the crucifixion. But some of these had maybe been right there at the cross as well. And it says they were cut to the heart. And they were said to the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Don't you just love it when somebody comes and says, I get it. I understand what that you're offering someone here. You're offering a risen savior. You're not offering a theology. You're not offering a new religion. You're not offering a, 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 a type of dress, a type of ceremony, uh, uh, some sort of a robe that's special. You're not offering special, special acts or, or, or even, uh, Types of worship you're offering to me to have the relationship that I've always wanted to be in touch with the living God, to know he hears me, to see and hear and, re and he respond, to have my sins forgiven. And they ask the question, oh, I love it when somebody says, what do I do to get saved? What do I need to do? And if we will but listen for God at that moment. Because sometimes they're not asking what I need to do to get saved. They're like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus. Good master. No, there's none good save God. If you want to call me good, you better call me God. That's, that's his implication there. Good master, what, what need I to do to inherit eternal life? He says, keep the commands. Oh, yeah, I, I keep the commands. I'm a good boy. I'm a good girl if you were listening. And that, that is your heart. And you say, I, I really want to keep the commands. I've done everything. And he goes over the list. I've kept all these since my youth. And Jesus says, okay, you know the commands. Don't steal. Don't, don't kill. Uh, don't commit adultery. He goes over, you know, five from the, the actual, what we call the Decalogue. Five from, five from the Ten Commands. As a sixth, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, which is in the Word of God as well. It wasn't part of the Ten Commandments. He doesn't talk about thou shalt not covet. Jesus doesn't go into that one. Jesus doesn't say you love the Lord your God with all your heart. He doesn't say put, don't put idols in front of you. He doesn't talk about that. just talks about the, the commands that this man probably was pretty good at doing. And then he says, well, I'll tell you what you need to do. Go, 
Sell all you have. Give it to the poor. Come, follow me. And the guy says, uh, I didn't come with that kind of an agenda. I thought I could just be uh, like sit in my fine robes and, and my uh, noble chariot. Um, uh, have my great place at the great synagogue. Uh, I, I really want to have all of my wealth with me. You're, you're asking me something that's pretty hard. He looks straight up and he says, go, sell it. Then you'll be truly rich. You get rid of that which is holding you back. You, he's essentially saying, you covet. You idolize your wealth. You idolize your security. There's so many of us today in North America do the same. We say we're Christians. We say we love God. Would you willingly give up all to serve him? And, and I, I don't want to make this sound harsh. It's not meant to be harsh. Because I hope you've already given up all to serve him. I hope that as far as you're concerned, your name is not on the deed on the mortgage. Your name is not on the ownership papers of your vehicle. Your name is not on anything that you would be called by the world to own. But you have said, I'm just a steward. These are yours, Lord. If you call me to give them up, I want to be here to give them up. What shall we do? So mighty was the convicting power of the Holy Spirit that there was an immediate question and that is the kind of question you want. Peter said that we will lovely, lovingly have those questions to give a reason for the hope that is within you. And it's similar to what the jailer in Acts 16 and 31 said when he said, what must I do to be saved? Except they said, believe on the Lord Jesus, you will be saved, your whole household. They spoke the word of the Lord to them and all who were in his house and he was baptized. Now, a brief moment of clarity here is important. Do you notice that when Peter has that question, what must we do? What does he say? He says in verse 38, and Peter said to them, uh, go up to the altar and pray the sinner's prayer. Invite Jesus into your heart, every one of you. He does not say that. Well, what does he say? Well, what does the word say? He says to them, repent. Oops. I, I, thought, I thought it was just believe. Uh, if you look in the Bible, the New Testament makes it very clear that true faith always has repentance as the entrance to true faith. And you say, well, what is repentance? I've seen people come to the altar and cry and cry and cry. It is not about tears. Oh, okay. Well, I've seen people who, who say, I am repenting. I am repenting. But it's repentance in their mind. But it's not repentance in their heart. And so many of these people who had crucified the Lord, and we would have been among them, by the way, needed repentance from their heart. What is repentance? Well, the word literally means the 180 degree turn. It's the movement from going in one direction where you're in charge to now going the opposite direction to where God is in charge of your life. Some have claimed to believe but have never repented. They have lived a life of indulgence, self-centeredness, self-satisfaction, 
self-gratification, but never God first. Now, you can't repent without God. Like, if you're trying to repent and you're just going through the motions of emotion, it will not happen. But what it is, it's a surrender of your will to the Lord. And that only happens when you despise sin, when you realize that this is holy ground. And God is saying to you, you need to come to me so that you can be cleaned. But before you can be cleaned and come to me, you must want it. Want it with all your heart. And so he says, seek me and you will find me if you search for me with all your heart. And so repentance is the first thing that they hear on that day of Pentecost. Repent. Now, the second part of that statement, and let everyone be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. I want to make a little point on this. And that is simply this. That in the doctrine of salvation, baptism is never linked to salvation. Let me repeat that again. We need to hear it because we have been taught and mistaught over the centuries that because you were baptized either as a child or as an adult or as an older person, that somehow that has made your entrance into the kingdom of God sure and safe. It has no consequence on that. And it's the great lie of the devil. You see, the devil hasn't given up. Just because he's been defeated at the cross doesn't mean he still doesn't send out lots of deception. And so the doctrines of repentance is so clear, but the doctrine of baptism is also clear. And here it is. If the doctrine of baptism was a part of salvation, then when you read Hebrews chapter 11, where it talks about the great hallway of faith of all those believers in the Old Testament, how do they get saved? If they, they never got baptized, Hebrews 11, you look at the list of them. They were not baptized. And so in the dozens of New Testament passages, salvation is truly by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou wilt be saved. So why does he put baptism in it? Well, first of all, the word for means as a consequence. It doesn't mean to produce salvation. It means as a consequence of salvation. The thief on the cross had no had the assurance of salvation. You will be with me. You know, he's one of the few people in the entire Bible that had the Lord himself saying, you are going to heaven. Now, we have the Holy Spirit assuring us of that. And I hope you have the Holy Spirit in your heart assuring you that you are going to heaven because there's nothing you can do that will make you right. It's been done. It was done on the cross. But the Lord Jesus spoke to the thief and said, today you will be with me in paradise. Wonderful. He didn't get baptized. In fact, the Savior was never, had never baptized anyone. A strange omission if baptism was essential to salvation. The Apostle Paul was thankful he baptized only a few. That's a strange suggestion if baptism was only, had some saving merit. So, Spurgeon put it right. Will not the church of God know that that which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit? How can you bring a clean thing out of an unclean? The natural birth communicates nature's filthiness. It cannot convey peace. And that's a test of whether you do know the Lord Jesus. Paul could say, uh, the peace of God which surpasses all knowledge will guard your hearts, garrison your hearts and minds. Do you have peace today? 
Paul, when he wrote to the Romans, he said, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And so under the new covenant, we are expressly told the sons of God are born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. John 1.13. There was a great surge of people. We pray for revival. They had 3,000 people come to faith in Christ that day. Wow, I wonder what their potlucks look like. It was pretty amazing. You pray for revival, and the Lord heard their prayers. And there was a surge of people. And the Lord continued to work in them, with them, and they were continuing to be saved. In Acts 2.42, we have one brief comment that I need to make on that verse before we ask the team to come up. Acts 2.42 is one of the verses we often use to say this is a, a pillar of the church. And it says this, when the believers came forward, when those who gladly received his word were baptized, that day were about 3,000 souls added to them, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in the breaking bread, and in prayers. Four pillars there. The apostles' doctrine. We should never be afraid of the entire word of God. I love the fact that we go through the word of God here at this church expository. We, we have to handle hard subjects. And that's good for us because it challenges us, each one of us, to study the word, to show ourselves approved to God, a worker that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so he says, they studied the apostles' doctrine. They had fellowship, Bible, fellowship, assembly. Middle word of our coined phrase for our group, BFA, big friendly aliens. No, um, we are called to fellowship. I'm so glad that during this time when we've been out of the opportunity to interact with one another, we can now enjoy times of fellowship in a way that we couldn't before. Let's make sure that we don't just wait for a potluck supper to invite people into our homes, though. No one says that we just have to wait for the, the uh, end of summer to go or our barbecue, a barbecue to extend hospitality to others, even in this time. And then, of course, the breaking of bread and fellowship. Sorry, breaking of bread and prayers. And we had the breaking of bread earlier. If you're not a regular participant of the breaking of bread, the early church broke bread on the first day of the week, Acts 20, verse, verse 1. And uh, seven. And it says that they gathered together weekly. There was no thought that we were like those of you who are on on Zoom today. Um, I'm sure that they they didn't recognize that. But there's there's a sense where being actually in the actual building is so much better. So much better. And so I would encourage all to come to the building. Not to say that we don't want to see the Zoom grow as well, because sometimes they say it takes a while for a person to get used to a church, and, and uh, that would be a great way for some to come and get used to the church. But nevertheless, meet daily, care daily, win souls daily, search the scriptures daily, and increase in numbers daily. You see, the Christian faith is a day-to-day -day reality, not just a Sunday morning experience. It's meant to be 168 hours. Why? 
Because the Lord is in us 168 hours of every week. He dwells in us by the Holy Spirit. We are part of that promise that was given in Acts chapter 2 by the Joel way back in the Old Testament. And guess what? We can practice the presence of God. I really love this reference to Brother Andrew, by the way, last week. Because I, too, seek to practice the presence of God. And as you just acknowledge him, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And as you take those moments, he will manifest himself in ways that we will never understand, but will be a part of why we're called in this generation for such a time as this. You say, I have no purpose. Oh, but you do, brother and sister. Every one of us are called to a high calling. Every one of us has great gifts. And every one of us is designed by God to bless and bring the family of God into his fold. May that be your calling today. May it not be just about the church in the first century as we've watched in Acts chapter 2 today. But it may be the church in the 21st century. And that the 21st century might indeed see blessing Upon blessing, upon blessing. May God bless you as we call on the music team to finish off and close in prayer. May God bless you. Thank you for those uh, thoughts and the message this morning, Dave. And as we have saw 3,000 added to that group of believers in one day, we we uh, are amazed at how God continues to add to his kingdom today. We heard many last night who would come to faith in in Christ, uh, even through the war in Ukraine and uh, and how uh, such a ministry was going on that people were very eager to hear about that message. So the, the church is still being built. We're going to stand and sing, hear the call of the kingdom. And uh, just that God is still building his kingdom today. Yes, Father, with uh, those thoughts in our mind, we will ask that you would help us to Go forth and proclaim your name. Speak of the wonders of God to the world around us. We pray that uh, you would honor and, uh, and glorify your name through our ministry. We pray that you would lead us and direct us and may your spirit uh, work in our midst. And may we be aware of your presence with us throughout this day and the coming weeks. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church, where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time. <laughs>